The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. We have talked about Henry James before, and we've done a deep dive into one of his stories, The Beast in the Jungle, that I thought might finish things off. Why return to this well? Haven't we already drunk the water it can provide? No one wants to drink a bucket of sand. Well, dear listeners, it turns out that the well is not yet dry. Nowhere even close. Henry James is difficult to read at times, his prose all stubborn and naughty. At times it can feel like you've tossed a log into the fireplace and the damn thing refuses to burn. Come on, prose. Give me a little heat here. Give me a little light. But often it just means we have to do a little more work and soon enough the fire is raging And then we realize we could not only heat the house with this log, we could power the whole neighborhood. There is so much richness there. And so, today, as the rain pours down on the Jack Wilson studio, we pick up another Henry James log. We turn it from side to side, admiring its heft. We wonder whether we have the right kindling to set it ablaze. We ask our friend Jorge Luis Borges, expert in all things incendiary, for a little assistance. And then, we light our match. Henry James's great long short story, The Figure in the Carpet, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Let's get started. I cited Jorge Luis Borges in the beginning, and that's no accident. We have some extended quotes from him to kick things off. We're building to the majestic story, The Figure in the Carpet by Henry James, which we will read to you. This is going to come in multiple parts, and don't worry, I will do my best to frame the story and make it accessible as we read. We'll do some commentary along the way so you don't get lost. And I'll try to give a few notes, too, pointing out some things like a good tour guide does. But we'll start with Borges. Because in this reading of Henry James, I realized how much James has in common with the great Argentinian writer, a connection I had not really made before. But as it turns out, it's a connection I should have made. Borges talked about his debt to Henry James numerous times. He seemed to think that people misunderstood James, especially in the short stories. Now we say short stories, but they're long by our standards, novellas or something close to it. Borges once said, I have visited some literatures of the East and West. I have compiled an encyclopedic anthology of fantastic literature. I have translated Kafka, Melville, and Bloy. I know of no stranger work than that of Henry James. End quote. No stranger work. Not always the adjective that we use when we think of Henry James. Sometimes we think of something a little more authoritative than that. Straightforward, dry, dusty, stodgy. Stranger work. Very intriguing. In his Paris Review interview, Borges elaborates a little more. He says, In the case of Kafka, we know very little. We only know that he was very dissatisfied with his own work. Of course, when he told his friend Max Brode that he wanted his manuscripts to be burned, as Virgil did, I suppose he knew that his friend wouldn't do that. If a man wants to destroy his own work, he throws it into a fire, and there it goes. When he tells a close friend of his, I want all the manuscripts to be destroyed, he knows that the friend will never do that, and the friend knows that he knows, and that he knows that the other knows that he knows, and so on and so forth. Interviewer. It's all very Jamesian. Borges. Yes, of course. I think that the whole world of Kafka is to be found in a far more complex way in the stories of Henry James. I think that they both thought of the world as being at the same time complex and meaningless. Interviewer. Meaningless? Borges. Don't you think so? Interviewer. 
No, I really don't think so. In the case of James, Borges. But in the case of James, yes. In the case of James, yes. I don't think he thought the world had any moral purpose. I think he disbelieved in God. In fact, I think there's a letter written to his brother, the psychologist William James, wherein he says that the world is a diamond museum, let's say a collection of oddities, no? I suppose he meant that. Now, in the case of Kafka, I think Kafka was looking for something. Interviewer. For some meaning? Borges, for some meaning, yes, and not finding it, perhaps, but I think that they both lived in a kind of maze, no? Interviewer, I would agree to that. A book like The Sacred Fount, for example. Borges, yes, The Sacred Fount and many short stories. For example, The Abasement of the Northmores, where the whole story is a beautiful revenge, but a revenge that the reader never knows will happen or not. The woman is very sure that her husband's work, which nobody seems to have read or cares about, is far better than the work of his famous friend. But maybe the whole thing is untrue. Maybe she was just led by her love for him. One doesn't know whether those letters, when they are published, will really come to anything. Of course, James was trying to write two or three stories at one time. That's the reason why he never gave any explanation. The explanation would have made the story poorer. He said the turn of the screw was just a potboiler. Don't worry about it. But I don't think that was the truth. For instance, he said, well, if I give explanations, then the story will be poorer because the alternative explanations will be left out. I think he did that on purpose. Interviewer. I agree. People shouldn't know. Borges. People shouldn't know. And perhaps he didn't know himself. Interviewer, do you like to have the same effect on your readers? Borges, oh yes, of course I do, but I think the stories of Henry James are far above his novels. What's important in the stories of Henry James are the situations created, not the characters. That's the end of the interview, and then when asked to choose 100 books by a publisher for a personal library, Borges chose three works by Henry James, including the work we're considering today, The Figure in the Carpet. So, with that as our introduction, the idea that Henry James is to be considered alongside of Kafka, for his strangeness. Let's take a quick break and then return with what I admire about this story, The Figure in the Carpet, and then we'll get started with the work itself. All that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, so The Figure in the Carpet was first published in a journal called Cosmopolis, an international monthly review, in 1896. 
The publication is interesting. It was a multilingual journal published out of London with stories and articles in English, French, and German. It had a circulation of about 20,000, and it lasted for about two years before it went bust. This story, The Figure in the Carpet, is in the very first edition, Volume 1, or in the first two editions, I should say, as it spread out over two months, January and February. Other writers and stories in the journal are include a serialized novel by Robert Louis Stevenson, a review of the latest Thomas Hardy novel, and works by Anatole France. James's story, The Figure in the Carpet, is about a writer for a literary newspaper called The Middle, so-called because it comes out midweek. He's a reviewer, proud of his abilities, passionate about what he reads, as James himself had been and could be. But James could also put himself in the shoes of the reviewed. And in this case, the reviewed is an august figure who has written many books. The key question is whether those books as a whole have any kind of meaning, any through line, any secret within them. And if so, can the reviewer discern what it is? We are in rarefied territory here for those of us who love books and authors. What happens when we read all of Faulkner or all of George Eliot or Proust? What do we find from book to book as we watch a life and an artistry unfold? I'm reading Toni Morrison now, start to finish, and I'm helped along by her own prefaces and introductions and explanations. Here's who I was, she says. Here's what I was doing. Here's where I think I succeeded. And here's where I think I failed. But what if you don't have that? Or if you don't believe the author? Or if you don't understand it fully? What if all you have is the fiction or verse to pull from? Here's someone you admire, doing something you admire. They've succeeded in conveying truths at the sentence level hundreds and thousands of times. They've hammered out their art blow by blow. What's the bigger picture? What has it all meant? And if art's not your thing or literature isn't, what about looking at a life like this? When you see someone you love as they age and they've made decisions and done things, what purpose have they had? What animates them? What unites all those decades of thoughts and deeds? Can you find a design to any of it? Can you communicate it? And will they recognize themselves in what you say? So before we begin, here's what I admire so much about this story. First, the way James builds suspense, making us care about this quest that the narrator-slash-reviewer has undertaken. Second, I admire the author-critic-reader dynamic and the near desperation we sometimes feel as we try to discern meaning. The stakes are high and seem almost existential at times. For those of us who read, love literature. Three, I admire the way that James lands the plane. The resolution is satisfying without being compromised. So often in James, I think he's painted himself in a corner here. There's nowhere for him to go that isn't going to feel false to the rest of the story. And then, in his best work, he finds a way. The fourth thing I admire is something I'll save for later because it has more to do with the ending of the story. So here we go, the beginning of the figure in the carpet. We will meet our narrator, who is a reviewer for a periodical called The Middle. We'll meet his editor, George Corvick, who offers him a new assignment. And we'll hear about the object of the assignment, a new novel by an established writer named Hugh Vereker. The Figure in the Carpet by Henry James Chapter 1 I had done a few things and earned a few pence. I had perhaps even had time to begin to think I was finer than was perceived by the patronizing. But when I take the little measure of my course, a fidgety habit, for it's none of the longest yet, I count my real start from the evening George Corvick, breathless and worried, came in to ask me a service. He had done more things than I and earned more pence though there were chances for cleverness I thought he sometimes missed. 
I could only, however, that evening declare to him that he never missed one for kindness. There was almost rapture in hearing it proposed to me to prepare for the middle, the organ of our lucubrations, so called from the position in the week of its day of appearance, an article for which he had made himself responsible, and of which, tied up with a stout string, he laid on my table the subject. I pounced upon my opportunity, that is, on the first volume of it, and paid scant attention to my friend's explanation of his appeal. What explanation could be more to the point than my obvious fitness for the task? I had written on Hugh Vereker, but never a word in the middle, where my dealings were mainly with the ladies and the minor poets. This was his new novel, an advanced copy, and whatever much or little it should do for his reputation, I was clear on the spot as to what it should do for mine. Moreover, if I always read him as soon as I could get hold of him, I had a particular reason for wishing to read him now. I had accepted an invitation to Bridges for the following Sunday, and it had been mentioned in Lady Jane's note that Mr. Vereker was to be there. I was young enough for a flutter at meeting a man of his renown, and innocent enough to believe the occasion would demand the display of an acquaintance with his last. Okay, let me interrupt there. Are we following? Our narrator is excited. Not only is he going to write a review of Hugh Vereker's latest novel, which the editor George Corvick has committed to, but is now going to ask our narrator to do instead, our narrator is also planning to meet Hugh Vereker at Lady Jane's party at Bridges. Therefore, he believes he should read the man's latest novel so he can show that he's done so. Okay, back to the story. Corvick, who had promised a review of it, had not even had time to read it. He had gone to pieces in consequence of news requiring, as on precipitate reflection he judged, that he should catch the night mail to Paris. He had had a telegram from Gwendolyn Hermé in answer to his letter offering to fly to her aid. I knew already about Gwendolyn Hermé. I had never seen her, but I had my ideas, which were mainly to the effect that Corvick would marry her if her mother would only die. That lady seemed now in a fair way to oblige him. After some dreadful mistake about a climate or a cure— she had suddenly collapsed on the return from abroad. Her daughter, unsupported and alarmed, desiring to make a rush for home but hesitating at the risk, had accepted our friend's assistance, and it was my secret belief that at sight of him Mrs. Hermé would pull round. His own belief was scarcely to be called secret. It discernibly, at any rate, differed from mine." He had showed me Gwendolyn's photograph with the remark that she wasn't pretty, but was awfully interesting. She had published at the age of nineteen a novel in three volumes, deep down, about which, in the middle, he had been really splendid. He appreciated my present eagerness and undertook that the periodical in question should do no less. Then, at the last, with his hand on the door, he said to me, "'Of course, you'll be all right, you know.' Seeing I was a trifle vague, he added, I mean, you won't be silly. Silly? About Vereker? Why, what do I ever find him but awfully clever? Well, what's that but silly? What on earth does awfully clever mean? For God's sake, try to get at him. Don't let him suffer by our arrangement. Speak of him, you know, if you can, as I should have spoken of him. I wondered an instant. You mean... As far and away the biggest of the lot, that sort of thing? Corvick almost groaned. Oh, you know, I don't put them back to back that way. It's the infancy of art. But he gives me a pleasure so rare, the sense of... He mused a little. Something or other. I wondered again. The sense, pray, of what? My dear man, that's just what I want you to say. Even before he had banged the door, I had begun, book in hand, to prepare myself to say it. 
I sat up with Vereker half the night. Corvick couldn't have done more than that. He was awfully clever. I stuck to that. But he wasn't a bit the biggest of the lot. I didn't allude to the lot, however. I flattered myself that I emerged on this occasion from the infancy of art. It's all right, they declared vividly at the office. And when the number appeared, I felt there was a basis on which I could meet the great man. It gave me confidence for a day or two. Then that confidence dropped. I had fancied him reading it with relish, but if Corvick wasn't satisfied, how could Vereker himself be? I reflected, indeed, that the heat of the admirer was sometimes grosser even than the appetite of the scribe. Corvick, at all events, wrote me from Paris a little ill-humouredly. Mrs. Hermé was pulling round and I hadn't at all said what Vereker gave him the sense of. Okay. Interrupt here. We're moving quickly now. That's the end of chapter one. A reviewer has written the review. It came out midweek. George Corvick, the editor, was not all that pleased with it. Fine enough, he says. You did the job. You didn't do anything silly, which had been his warning. But there's something in Vereker's work that I've sort of noticed but couldn't quite put my finger on. And whatever your review has done, narrator, you haven't done that. Meanwhile, Corvick is in a bit of drama himself. He wants to marry this woman, but they can't get married while her mother is alive. And when her mother gets sick and Corvick shows up to help, she recovers. The old lady is hanging on to spite him, it seems, to our narrator at least. Kind of amusing. But really the heart of what's happening here is Vereker and his works. Something is in them. This latest novel is yet another piece of the puzzle, but neither the editor, George Corvick, nor the reviewer, our narrator, has been quite able to put the picture together. But do we have another opportunity here? Remember, the narrator has been invited to Bridges, where Vereker is also going to be. Our narrator wonders if Vereker will comment upon his review of his latest novel. If Corvick hasn't liked it, then what will Vereker think of it? And so on we go to chapter two. Chapter two. The effect of my visit to Bridges was to turn me out for more profundity. Hugh Vereker, as I saw him there, was of a contact so void of angles that I blushed for the poverty of imagination involved in my small precautions. If he was in spirits, it wasn't because he had read my review. In fact, on the Sunday morning, I felt sure he hadn't read it, though the middle had been out three days, and bloomed, I assured myself, in the stiff garden of periodicals which gave one of the Ormolu tables the air of a stand at a station. The impression he made on me personally was such that I wished him to read it, and I corrected to this end with a surreptitious hand what might be wanting in the careless conspicuity of the sheet. I'm afraid I even watched the result of my maneuver but up to luncheon I watched in vain. Let me pause there. This is all an elaborate, maybe an over-elaborate way of saying that Vereker hadn't read the review, so the narrator tried to place it prominently where he'd see it. And then he spied on Vereker, hoping that he'd pick it up and read it. But he didn't. The narrator is sort of stalking the guy at this luncheon, which is very... Very common in my experience, not just with writers, but with celebrities and notables of all types. People make themselves foolish by sort of sidling up or trying to casually cross paths and so on. That's what this guy is doing, including with his review, trying to put the periodical somewhere where he'll see it and pick it up and read it. That's, anyway, that's what our narrator is doing, and he's not done yet. Back to the story. When afterwards, in the course of our gregarious walk, I found myself for half an hour, not perhaps without another maneuver, at the great man's side, the result of his affability was a still livelier desire that he shouldn't remain in ignorance of the peculiar justice I had done him. It wasn't that he seemed to thirst for justice. On the contrary, I hadn't yet caught in his talk the faintest grunt of a grudge, a note for which my Young experience had already given me an ear. Of late he had had more recognition, and it was pleasant, as we used to say in the middle, to see how it drew him out. 
He wasn't, of course, popular, but I judged one of the sources of his good humor to be precisely that his success was independent of that. He had nonetheless become, in a manner, the fashion. The critics, at least, had put on a spurt and caught up with him. We had found out at last how clever he was, and he had had to make the best of the loss of his mystery. I was strongly tempted, as I walked beside him, to let him know how much of that unveiling was my act, and there was a moment when I probably should have done so, had not one of the ladies of our party, snatching a place at his other elbow, just then appealed to him in a spirit comparatively selfish. It was very discouraging. I almost felt the liberty had been taken with myself. Okay, breaking in again. The reviewer is proud here, proud of his role as a reviewer and proud of his role in particular toward this guy, Vericker. He says, hey, you're you're not a runaway success, not a bestseller, but you're clearly proud of where you stand as an author and of the fact that you're critically well-received. You're confident that your books are good and that smart people have finally noticed how good they are. Well, guess what? I'm one of those smart people, one of those tastemakers. You've benefited from me more than you seem to realize, so how about recognizing that? You write your books, fine, that gives you a kind of cachet here, kind of confidence, but I'm the one who saw something clever in them, and my words writing about your books have helped to give you this recognition that you now take for granted. That's where our our narrator stands here. Okay, back to the story. I had had on my tongue's end, for my own part, a phrase or two about the right word at the right time. But later on I was glad not to have spoken, for when on our return we clustered at tea, I perceived Lady Jane, who had not been out with us, brandishing the middle with her longest arm. She had taken it up at her leisure. She was delighted with what she had found, and I saw that— as a mistake in a man may often be a felicity in a woman, she would practically do for me what I hadn't been able to do for myself. Some sweet little truths that needed to be spoken, I heard her declare, thrusting the paper at rather a bewildered couple by the fireplace. She grabbed it away from them again on the reappearance of Hugh Vereker, who, after our walk, had been upstairs to change something. I know you don't in general look at this kind of thing, but it's an occasion really for doing so. You haven't seen it? Then you must. The man has actually got at you, at what I always feel, you know. Lady Jane threw into her eyes a look evidently intended to give an idea what she always felt, but she added that she couldn't have expressed it. The man in the paper expressed it in a striking manner. Just see there and there where I've dashed it, how he brings it out. She had literally marked for him the brightest patches of my prose, and if I was a little amused, Vereker himself may well have been. He showed how much he was when before us all, Lady Jane wanted to read something aloud. I liked at any rate the way he defeated her purpose by jerking the paper affectionately out of her clutch. He'd take it upstairs with him and look at it on going to dress. He did this half an hour later. I saw it in his hand when he repaired to his room. That was the moment at which, thinking to give her pleasure, I mentioned to Lady Jane that I was the author of the review. I did give her pleasure, I judged, but perhaps not quite so much as I had expected. If the author was only me, the thing didn't seem quite so remarkable. Hadn't I had the effect, rather, of diminishing the luster of the article than of adding to my own? Her ladyship was subject to the most extraordinary drops. It didn't matter. The only effect I cared about was the one it would have on Vereker, up there by his bedroom fire. At dinner, I watched for the signs of this impression, tried to fancy some happier light in his eyes. But to my disappointment, Lady Jane gave me no chance to make sure. I had hoped she'd call triumphantly down the table, publicly demand if she hadn't been right. The party was large, there were people from outside as well, 
but I had never seen a table long enough to deprive Lady Jane of a triumph. I was just reflecting in truth that this interminable board would deprive me of one when the guest next me, dear woman, she was Miss Poyle, the vicar's sister, a robust, unmodulated person, had the happy inspiration and the unusual courage to address herself across it to Vereker, who was opposite, but not directly, so that when he replied, they were both leaning forward. She inquired, artless body, what he thought of Lady Jane's panegyric, which she had read, not connecting it, however, with her right-hand neighbor, and while I strained my ear for his reply, I heard him, to my stupefaction, call back gaily, his mouth full of bread, Oh, it's all right. The usual twaddle. <laughs> Let's pause there for a moment. Our narrator has written about Vereker. To his disappointment, his editor didn't really like the review much, but he wanted Vereker to read it. He couldn't contrive to make that happen, but he was saved by Lady Jane, who absolutely loved the review and marked it up and urged it on her guest. This man has got you. She said, he nailed you. You must read it. So Vereker reads it. He returns to the party. Our narrator awaits his verdict. Oh, by the way, there's a nice little moment, I hope you caught it, where the host Lady Jane is disappointed to meet the reviewer. <laughs> that it diminished the review in her eyes that it had been written by the narrator. By only me, he says gloomily. She didn't add to her. It didn't add to my luster. It took away from the review's luster to connect it with me. I'm sort of rooting for the narrator, even as I wish he would just relax. But then, as the narrator eagerly awaits Vereker's reaction to his reaction, Vereker declares that the review is, quote, the usual twaddle, end quote. He says that with his mouth full of bread. He doesn't realize the narrator is sitting right there. Not exactly the affirmation for which our narrator has hoped. Let's see what happens after that. I had caught Vereker's glance as he spoke, but Miss Poyle's surprise was a fortunate cover for my own. You mean he doesn't do you justice? said the excellent woman. Vereker laughed out, and I was happy to be able to do the same. It's a charming article, he tossed us. Miss Poyle thrust her chin half across the cloth. Oh, you're so deep, she drove home. As deep as the ocean. All I pretend is that the author doesn't see. But a dish was at this point passed over his shoulder, and we had to wait while he helped himself. Doesn't see what? My neighbor continued. Doesn't see anything. Dear me. How very stupid. Not a bit. Vereker laughed. Nobody does. The lady on his further side appealed to him, and Miss Poyle sank back to myself. Nobody sees anything, she cheerfully announced, to which I replied that I had often thought so too, but had somehow taken the thought for a proof on my own part of a tremendous eye. I didn't tell her the article was mine, and I observed that Lady Jane, occupied at the end of the table, had not caught Vereker's words. I rather avoided him after dinner, for I confess he struck me as cruelly conceited, and the revelation was a pain. The usual twaddle, my acute little study. That one's admiration should have had a reserve or two could gall him to that point. I had thought him placid, and he was placid enough. Such a surface was the hard, polished glass that encased the bauble of his vanity. I was really ruffled, and the only comfort was that if nobody saw anything, George Corvick was quite as much out of it as I. This comfort, however, was not sufficient after the ladies had dispersed, to carry me in the proper manner, I mean in a spotted jacket and humming an air, into the smoking-room. I took my way in some dejection to bed, but in the passage I encountered Mr. Vereker, 
who had been up once more to change, coming out of his room. He was humming an air and had on a spotted jacket, and as soon as he saw me, his gaiety gave a start. My dear young man, he exclaimed, I'm so glad to lay hands on you. I'm afraid I most unwittingly wounded you by those words of mine at dinner to Miss Poyle. I learned but half an hour ago from Lady Jane that you're the author of the little notice in the middle. I protested that no bones were broken, but he moved with me to my own door, his hand on my shoulder kindly feeling for a fracture. And on hearing that I had come up to bed, he asked leave to cross my threshold and just tell me in three words what his qualification of my remarks had represented. It was plain he really feared I was hurt and the sense of his solicitude suddenly made all the difference to me. My cheap review fluttered off into space, and the best things I had said in it became flat enough beside the brilliancy of his being there. I can see him there still, on my rug, in the firelight and his spotted jacket, his fine clear face all bright with the desire to be tender to my youth. I don't know what he had at first meant to say, but I think the sight of my relief touched him, excited him, brought up words to his lips from far within. It was so these words presently conveyed to me something that, as I afterwards knew, he had never uttered to anyone. I've always done justice to the generous impulse that made him speak. It was simply compunction for a snub unconsciously administered to a man of letters in a position inferior to his own, a man of letters, moreover, in the very act of praising him. To make the thing right, he talked to me exactly as an equal, and on the ground of what we both loved best. The hour, the place, the unexpectedness deepened the impression. He couldn't have done anything more intensely effective. That's the end of chapter two. Do you know what I mean now, dear listener, when I said that James is building suspense here? Hugh Vereker is an invented person. I've never read his books. I've never read any reviews of them. None of that is even really described. And yet I'm invested. I want to know right alongside our narrator. This suddenly matters. What secret will this author divulge? The author, who feels bad that he had criticized this young reviewer, is about to divulge something he's never spoken of before. Will this secret enlighten our narrator, and how so? What is in these books that's so devilishly hard to discern, or is it just the vanity of the author? that makes him look at a review and call it the usual twaddle. I cannot wait to hear. So let's take a quick break and then listen in on their conversation. We are back with chapters three and four of Henry James's The Figure in the Carpet. We're about to eavesdrop on a conversation between the great writer Hugh Vereker and our narrator, who has written a review of Vereker's latest novel. The review somehow fell short. The editor, George Corvick, didn't love it, and Vereker himself declared it to be the usual twaddle. Now, Vereker, as a way of sort of apology, is, has offered to explain himself to the reviewer, our narrator, who is breathless with anticipation of what he will learn. Chapter 3 I don't quite know how to explain it to you, he said, but it was the very fact that your notice of my book had a spice of intelligence. It was just your exceptional sharpness that produced the feeling, a very old story with me, I beg you to believe, under the momentary influence of which I used in speaking to that good lady the words you so naturally resent. I don't read the things in the newspapers unless they're thrust upon me, as that one was. It's always one's best friend who does it. But I used to read them sometimes, ten years ago. I dare say they were in general rather stupider then. At any rate, it always struck me they missed my little point with a perfection exactly as admirable when they patted me on the back as when they kicked me in the shins. 
Whenever since I've happened to have a glimpse of them, they were still blazing away, still missing it, I mean, deliciously. You miss it, my dear fellow, with inimitable assurance. The fact of your being awfully clever and your articles being awfully nice doesn't make a hair's breadth of difference. It's quite with you rising young men, Vereker laughed, that I feel most what a failure I am. I listened with keen interest. It grew keener as he talked. You a failure? Heavens! What then may your little point happen to be? Have I got to tell you after all these years and labors? There was something in the friendly reproach of this, jocosely exaggerated, that made me, as an ardent young seeker for truth, blush to the roots of my hair. I'm as much in the dark as ever, though I've grown used in a sense to my obtuseness. At that moment, however, Vereker's happy accent made me appear to myself, and probably to him, a rare dunce. I was on the point of exclaiming, Ah, yes, don't tell me, for my honor, for that of the craft, don't. When he went on in a manner that showed he had read my thought and had his own idea of the probability of our some day redeeming ourselves. By my little point, I mean, what shall I call it, the particular thing I've written my books most for. Isn't there for every writer a particular thing of that sort, the thing that most makes him apply himself, the thing without the effort to achieve which he wouldn't write at all? the very passion of his passion, the part of the business in which, for him, the flame of art burns most intensely? Well, it's that. I considered a moment. That is, I followed at a respectful distance, rather gasping. I was fascinated, easily, you'll say, but I wasn't going after all to be put off my guard. Your description's certainly beautiful, but it doesn't make what you describe very distinct. I promise you it would be distinct if it should dawn on you at all. I saw that the charm of our topic overflowed for my companion into an emotion as lively as my own. At any rate, he went on, I can speak for myself. There's an idea in my work without which I wouldn't have given a straw for the whole job. It's the finest, fullest intention of the lot, and the application of it has been, I think, a triumph of patience, of ingenuity. I ought to leave that to somebody else to say, but that nobody does say it is precisely what we're talking about. It stretches, this little trick of mine, from book to book, and everything else, comparatively, plays over the surface of it. The order, the form, the texture of my books will perhaps some day constitute for the initiated a complete representation of it. So it's naturally the thing for the critic to look for. It strikes me, my visitor added, smiling, even as the thing for the critic to find. This seemed a responsibility indeed. You call it a little trick? That's only my little modesty. It's really an exquisite scheme. And you hold that you've carried the scheme out. The way I've carried it out is the thing in life I think a bit well of myself for. I had a pause. Don't you think you ought, just a trifle, to assist the critic? Assist him? What else have I done with every stroke of my pen? I've shouted my intention in his great blank face. At this, laughing out again, Vereker laid his hand on my shoulder to show the illusion wasn't to my personal appearance. But you talk about the initiated. There must, therefore, you see, be initiation. What else in heaven's name is criticism supposed to be? I'm afraid I colored at this too, but I took refuge in repeating that his account of his silver lining was poor in something or other that a plain man knows things by. That's only because you've never had a glimpse of it. 
he returned. If you had had one, the element in question would soon have become practically all you'd see. To me, it's exactly as palpable as the marble of this chimney. Besides, the critic just isn't a plain man. If he were, pray, what would he be doing in his neighbor's garden? You're anything but a plain man yourself, and the very raison d'etre of you all is that you're little demons of subtlety. If my great affair is a secret, that's only because it's a secret in spite of itself. The amazing event has made it one. I not only never took the smallest precaution to keep it so, but never dreamed of any such accident. If I had, I shouldn't in advance have had the heart to go on. As it was, I only became aware little by little, and meanwhile I had done my work. And now... You quite like it, I risked. My work? Your secret. It's the same thing. You're guessing that, Vereker replied, is a proof that you're as clever as I say. I was encouraged by this to remark that he would clearly be pained to part with it, and he confessed that it was indeed with him now the great amusement of life. I live almost to see if it will ever be detected. He looked at me for a jesting challenge. Something far within his eyes seemed to peep out. But I needn't worry. It won't. You fire me as I've never been fired, I declared. You make me determined to do or die. Then I asked, Is it a kind of esoteric message? His countenance fell at this. He put out his hand as if to bid me good night. Ah, my dear fellow, it can't be described in cheap journalese. I knew, of course, he'd be awfully fastidious, but our talk had made me feel how much his nerves were exposed. I was unsatisfied. I kept hold of his hand. I won't make use of the expression, then. I said, in the article in which I shall eventually announce my discovery, though I dare say I shall have hard work to do without it. But meanwhile, just to hasten that difficult birth, can't you give a fellow a clue? I felt much more at my ease. My whole lucid effort gives him the clue, every page and line and letter, the things as concrete there as a bird in a cage, a bait on a hook, a piece of cheese in a mouse trap. It's stuck into every volume as your foot is stuck into your shoe. It governs every line, it chooses every word, it dots every I, it places every comma. I scratched my head. Is it something in the style or something in the thought? An element of form or an element of feeling? He indulgently shook my hand again, and I felt my questions to be crude and my distinctions pitiful. Good night, my dear boy. Don't bother about it. After all, you do like a fellow. And a little intelligence might spoil it. I still detained him. He hesitated. Well, you've got a heart in your body. Is that an element of form or an element of feeling? What I contend that nobody has ever mentioned in my work is the organ of life. I see. It's some idea about life, some sort of philosophy. Unless it be, I added with the eagerness of a thought perhaps still happier, some kind of game you're up to with your style something you're after in the language. Perhaps it's a preference for the letter P, I ventured profanely to break out. Papa, potatoes, prunes, that sort of thing. He was suitably indulgent. He only said I hadn't got the right letter, but his amusement was over. I could see he was bored. There was nevertheless something else I had absolutely to learn. Should you be able, pen in hand, to state it clearly yourself, to name it, phrase it, formulate it. Oh, he almost passionately sighed, if I were only, pen in hand, one of you chaps. That would be a great chance for you, of course, but why should you despise us chaps for not doing what you can't do yourself? 
can't do? He opened his eyes. Haven't I done it in twenty volumes? I do it in my way, he continued. Go you and don't do it in yours. Ours is so devilish difficult, I weakly observed. So's mine. We each choose our own. There's no compulsion. You won't come down and smoke? No. I want to think this thing out. You'll tell me then in the morning that you've laid me bare. I'll see what I can do. I'll sleep on it. But just one word more, I added. We had left the room. I walked again with him for a few steps along the passage. This extraordinary general intention, as you call it, for that's the most vivid description I can induce you to make of it, is then generally a sort of buried treasure. His face lighted. Yes, call it that, though it's perhaps not for me to do so. Nonsense, I laughed. You know you're hugely proud of it. Well, I didn't propose to tell you so, but it is the joy of my soul. You mean it's a beauty so rare, so great? He waited a little again. The loveliest thing in the world. We had stopped, and on these words he left me, but at the end of the corridor, while I looked after him rather yearningly, he turned and caught sight of my puzzled face. It made him earnestly, indeed I thought quite anxiously, shake his head and wave his finger. Give it up! Give it up! This wasn't a challenge. It was fatherly advice. If I had had one of his books at hand, I'd have repeated my recent act of faith. I'd have spent half the night with him. At three o'clock in the morning, not sleeping, remembering moreover how indispensable he was to Lady Jane, I stole down to the library with a candle. There wasn't, so far as I could discover, a line of his writing in the house. That is the end of chapter three, and the game is afoot. This mystery in the books, in all twenty volumes, every line on every page, the author has put it there. It's been his sole motivating force, and the critics, clever as they are, haven't noticed it. This critic, our narrator, is eager to find it. So eager, he's downstairs with a candle looking for some of his books, some of Hugh Vereker's books, so he can get started on his quest. Is it subject matter? Is it style? What could it be? Be? Is it a hidden meaning, buried treasure? Why do we read the authors we read? What do we find there when we read it? What's this guy holding back from us? And can our critic detect it and put it into words, unlocking the mystery at last? Let's do one more chapter today. So our narrator couldn't find books in the house. Does he leave bridges and drop the idea? Of course not. Chapter 4. Returning to town, I feverishly collected them all. I picked out each in its order and held it up to the light. This gave me a maddening month, in the course of which several things took place. One of these, the last I may as well immediately mention, was that I acted on Vereker's advice. I renounced my ridiculous attempt. I could really make nothing of the business. It proved a dead loss. After all, I had always, as he had himself noted, liked him, and what now occurred was simply that my new intelligence and vain preoccupation damaged my liking. I not only failed to run a general intention to earth, I found myself missing the subordinate intentions I had formerly enjoyed. His books didn't even remain the charming things they had been for me. The exasperation of my search put me out of conceit of them. Instead of being a pleasure, the more, they became a resource, the less. For from the moment I was unable to follow up the author's hint, I of course felt it a point of honor not to make use professionally of my knowledge of them. I had no knowledge. Nobody had any. It was humiliating. But I could bear it. They only annoyed me now. At last, they even bored me, and I accounted for my confusion— perversely, I allow, by the idea that Vereker had made a fool of me. The buried treasure was a bad joke. 
the general intention, a monstrous pose. The great point of it all is, however, that I told George Corvick what had befallen me, and that my information had an immense effect upon him. He had at last come back, but so, unfortunately, had Mrs. Hermé, and there was, as yet, I could see, no question of his nuptials. He was immensely stirred up by the anecdote I had brought from Bridges. It fell in so completely with the sense he had had from the first that there was more in Vereker than met the eye. When I remarked that the eye seemed what the printed page had been expressly invented to meet, he immediately accused me of being spiteful because I had been foiled. Our commerce had always that pleasant latitude. The thing Vereker had mentioned to me was exactly the thing he, Corvick, had wanted me to speak of in my review. On my suggesting at last that, with the assistance I had now given him, he would doubtless be prepared to speak of it himself, he admitted freely that before doing this there was more he must understand. What he would have said, had he reviewed the new book, was that there was evidently in the writer's inmost art something to be understood. I hadn't so much as hinted at that. No wonder the writer hadn't been flattered. I asked Corvick what he really considered he meant by his own super-subtlety, and, unmistakably kindled, he replied, "'It isn't for the vulgar! It isn't for the vulgar!' He had hold of the tail of something. He would pull hard, pull it right out. He pumped me dry on Vereker's strange confidence, and, pronouncing me the luckiest of mortals, mentioned half a dozen questions he wished to goodness I had had the gumption to put. Yet, on the other hand, he didn't want to be told too much. It would spoil the fun of seeing what would come. The failure of my fun was at the moment of our meeting not complete, but I saw it ahead, and Corvick saw that I saw it. I, on my side, saw likewise that one of the first things he would do would be to rush off with my story to Gwendolen. On the very day after my talk with him, I was surprised by the receipt of a note from Hugh Vereker, to whom our encounter at Bridges had been recalled, as he mentioned, by his falling in a magazine on some article to which my signature was attached. I read it with great pleasure, he wrote, and remembered under its influence our lively conversation by your bedroom fire. The consequence of this has been that I begin to measure the temerity of my having saddled you with a knowledge that you may find something of a burden." Now that the fit's over, I can't imagine how I came to be moved so much beyond my want. I had never before mentioned, no matter in what state of expansion, the fact of my little secret. And I shall never speak of that mystery again. I was accidentally so much more explicit with you than it had ever entered into my game to be, that I find this game, I mean the pleasure of playing it, suffers considerably." In short, if you can understand it, I've rather spoiled my sport. I really don't want to give anybody what I believe you clever young men call the tip. That's, of course, a selfish solicitude, and I name it to you for what it may be worth to you. If you're disposed to humor me, don't repeat my revelation. Think me demented. It's your right, but don't tell anybody why. The sequel to this communication was that as early on the morrow as I dared, I drove straight to Mr. Vereker's door. He occupied in those years one of the honest old houses in Kensington Square. He received me immediately, and as soon as I came in, I saw I hadn't lost my power to minister to his mirth. He laughed out at sight of my face, which doubtless expressed my perturbation. I had been indiscreet. My compunction was great. I have told somebody, I panted, and I'm sure that person will by this time have told somebody else. It's a woman into the bargain. The person you've told? No, the other person. I'm quite sure he must have told her. For all the good it will do her, or do me, a woman will never find out. No, but she'll talk all over the place. She'll do just what you don't want. Vereker thought a moment, but wasn't so disconcerted as I had feared. He felt that if the harm was done, it only served him right. It doesn't matter. Don't worry. I'll do my best. I promise you that your talk with me shall go no further. 
Very good. Do what you can. In the meantime, I pursued, George Corvick's possession of the tip may, on his part, really lead to something. That will be a brave day. I told him about Corvick's cleverness, his admiration, the intensity of his interest in my anecdote, and without making too much of the divergence of our respective estimates, mentioned that my friend was already of opinion that he saw much further into a certain affair than most people. He was quite as fired as I had been at Bridges. He was moreover in love with the young lady. Perhaps the two together would puzzle something out. Vereker seemed struck with this. Do you mean they're to be married? I dare say that's what it will come to. That may help them, he conceded, but we must give them time. I spoke of my own renewed assault and confessed my difficulties, whereupon he repeated his former advice. Give it up! Give it up! He evidently didn't think me intellectually equipped for the adventure. I stayed half an hour, and he was most good-natured, but I couldn't help pronouncing him a man of unstable moods. He had been free with me in a mood, he had repented in a mood, and now in a mood he had turned indifferent. This general levity helped me to believe that, so far as the subject of the tip went, there wasn't much in it. I contrived, however, to make him answer a few more questions about it, though he did so with visible impatience. For himself, beyond doubt, the thing we were all so blank about was vividly there. It was something... I guessed in the primal plan, something like a complex figure in a Persian carpet. He highly approved of this image when I used it, and he used another himself. It's the very string, he said, that my pearls are strung on. The reason of his note to me had been that he really didn't want to give us a grain of succor. Our density was a thing too perfect in its way to touch. He had formed the habit of depending on it, and if the spell was to break, it must break by some force of its own. He comes back to me from that last occasion, for I was never to speak to him again as a man with some safe preserve for sport. I wondered as I walked away where he had got his tip. And there we go, the end of chapter four. Our narrator gave it up. This is impossible and it's wrecking my time. Who needs this damn author, this conceited person with his stupid ideas about his own writings? The narrator thinks, but then he tells George Corvick, and George Corvick gets excited. You see, <laughs> you see, this is what I thought, too. I knew there was something there. I told you about it, narrator. And so the narrator gets sucked back in. And Hugh Vereker says, I'm so sorry. I probably burdened you with something undesirable to have in your mind. And anyway, I don't really want to talk about this. But then he gets excited, too, and we get a clue. He sort of thinks that George Corvick getting married might help him figure things out, that the couple might be able to piece things together. But he doesn't want to reveal it himself with any hints or anything, because, as he maintained before, it would spoil his life's work to do so. We are going to pause there. Dear listener, we will come back with the conclusion of the figure in the carpet next time. Okay, there we go. My thanks to everyone for joining me today. The figure in the carpet. What is that figure? The string on which all his pearls are strung. Twenty books contain this mystery, the un- spoken driving force behind them. And is this how James felt about his own books? Or about the works of someone he revered, let's say a Nathaniel Hawthorne? Is there some unifying principle that can stitch together an author's corpus? Or a person's corpus, for that matter, if we count a corpus as a life? There's an Updike story where a writer thinks about all the affairs he's had and says, these, these were my masterpieces. This is where I was the most creative. These affairs were more artistic than my works of art ever were. An interesting idea 
A life full of child raising and elder care, telling jokes to friends, working, admiring the sunsets and the stars. Is there something that strings it all together, some figure in the carpet? What is it for Hugh Vereker and his books, and what will that mean for the rest of us? We'll find out next time, or we'll find out that no such figure exists. Maybe this is Hugh Vereker's vanity. Maybe our carpets are without a pattern. They're just random designs lying on the floor, ornate but ornamental only. Speaking of ornate but ornamental only, well, I don't even know. (laughs) I don't even know if I can claim that much for myself. I aspire even to be at the level of insult. Not only is there no figure in my carpet, maybe I can't even claim it's ornate but ornamental only. Maybe my carpet is plain and drab, chewed through by rodents, uncarpet-like. There we go. I'm Jack Wilson. The lack of figure in a plain, drab, chewed through, carpet-sized rag. You're welcome, rodents. I hope you enjoyed your little feast on my corpus. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.